Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are. We have a game for you today. A game. Do you remember when we first started this podcast and we were like, sometimes we'll have games. This only, time we actually have a game for you. <laughs> it only took us 30 episodes, but I think we got there. <laughs> this is actually episode number 30 for us. Wow. 30 flirty and thriving. <laughs> <laughs> Giving new definition to the term, I guess. Being that it is March, I had a little bit of an idea inspired by our favorite horror content creators and yours, Dead Meat, but they also have a podcast, the Dead Meat Podcast, which is my favorite horror podcast that I listen to regularly. They do a lot of film reviews and they play a lot more games than we do, but something they do every March is Horror March Madness. So I was thinking we can do that. So we are doing Final Girl March Madness and Villain March Madness for our March episodes. And we aren't just picking any Final Girls. We are picking the ladies that we have gotten to know so well over the previous 29 episodes excluding our women's fears and history episodes, just because we didn't spend as much time with those movies. So if you have been listening from the beginning or you're all caught up on our episodes, you're going to hear a ton of names that sound very familiar and you will see how these women (laughs) fare against the other and who (laughs) will ultimately be triumphant as the ultimate final girl. Yes. So this week we are doing the final girl portion of the episode and we're going to end it with the villains. And the hope is that we have an ultimate final girl, an ultimate villain, and have them duke it out at the end of the second episode and see like who is our tournament winner. If you haven't listened to all of our episodes or you're not caught up, don't worry. We're going to offer a little bit of a uh, baseball card, for lack of a better term. Give a little bit of a refresher on who these ladies are and what their powers are how they fared their movie, all that kind of stuff. And then essentially, we're just going to have a conversation of who would win in a street fight. Yes. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm very excited. (laughs) This is definitely something that took a lot of planning on Shay's part. This is her creative baby. So I'm very honored to be participating in it. And I think that we'll have some good talks. We have a whole ass bracket, y'all. Like I went in. You should fucking see this. It's gorgeous. You guys, right now we're on Jamboard. (laughs) We are Jamboarding. It is a regular meeting up in here. Like this is an icebreaker. We're sharing the screens. There's a lot going on. But for the avid sports fans out there, I know that there's like a way where you're supposed to seed people. I didn't seed people. Okay. Cause I don't know how to like measure stats of all of these ladies. Okay. So essentially I just morphed all of these final girls into divisions based on certain things they have in common. And we're going to go over what those divisions are. And I just filled in a 32 bracket and tried to make it even based on my little knowledge of these movies. And you'll see for yourself. We might post some photos. We might do some polls to see what you think, who you think would win. But again, this is just our opinion. Whoever wins, we don't necessarily think is like the ultimate final girl to end all final girls. But we just thought this would be a fun deviation from our typical film reviews in just a way for us to be able to kind of look back on everything that we've done so far. and. Just have a lot of fun discussion of like who would fucking win in a fight with all the weapons of their disposal. Who's going to come out on top? And we're so excited to take you along for the ride. Hell yeah. 
So should we just do like a bracket at a time and introduce it as we go? Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, cool. We are going to start with our digital girls bracket, just because we are hot off the presses with some of these digital girls. And so why not start there? Our first matchup is our friend or not friend and yours, Blair (laughs) from Unfriended versus Haley, who is our final girl from Host. And Blair, if you listen to last week's episode, she was who we saw in the opening mourning the death of her friend, whom we find out was a little bit more instrumental in the cyberbullying that led to the death of her friend. And then Haley from Host, she's interested in doing a seance with her pals over Zoom in a pandemic, but shit hits the fan as it usually does. And she, I guess, makes it to the end. But I don't think either of these characters end up living. No, they both die at the end of their movie. (laughs) So that makes it tricky. (laughs) It does make it tricky. Here's my thing. I think... Blair might edge out for me only because, as we discussed in last week's movie, she is very resourceful, right? There's multiple times in the movie where she's trying to trick the Lara Barnes character. You know, when Ken is trying to get them to download Trojan software protection and she tells them all to mute their microphones so that Lara can't hear them. And then when she goes on Omegle to try to get somebody to call the cops for her so she can try to save Jess, she seems to be a little more proactive in trying to find solutions where Haley seems to be a little bit more reactive and just kind of watching what's happening to her friends. But I don't know if you disagree. Honestly, my memory of Haley, which I don't have a huge memory of Haley, she seems like a great person and does not seem like she'd be interested in a street fight. And for that reason, I think that she would lose the street fight because this is not her thing. However, Blair, not only is she resourceful, she is scrappy as hell and has scrappy as hell friends that could probably train her pretty well. Yeah. And Blair seems also just a little more ruthless being that Haley went into this. Obviously she wanted to do a seance, but I don't think her intention was to like hex her friends where Blair filmed her best friend after she shit herself after getting too drunk at a party and then let her boyfriend post it online. Blair isn't necessarily like the squeaky clean final girl. It sounds like that she'll kind of do what she needs to do to bite to the top of a social change. So for that reason, I think Blair wins. All right. We are moving her on to the next bracket. I agree with you. That was good. The next matchup we have still in the digital girl bracket, but finishing out the digital girl bracket, we have Gemma, who is a secondary character in host, but still very developed and personalized. And Lola from Cam, which was our collaboration with the horror show. Yes. The first thing I thought of looking at this matchup is Lola and how willing our girl Lola was to break her own nose on her desk just to prove that she was indeed the real Lola and the alter ego on the internet was the fake Lola. She beat herself up to prove a point. And I think that that shows a lot of gumption. He also showed up to that guy's motel room and like banged down his door and is like, what are you doing at the end where she had that like super fan? I forget his name. He had such a dorky name. But either way, she goes to this motel into the stranger's room and busts in and is like, what are you doing? What do you know? Like she's confrontational. She's not going to break down from a fight. 
where I would also say that Gemma has done the most in the movie. Like she is a jokester and she makes a mistake in the beginning of the movie, which may or may not have summoned the demon. She didn't treat the seance too seriously. And because she told a fake scary story, it created a mask for a demon to come and take over the Zoom room, right? But she is also the one who lasts the second the longest, and she's the only one who's able to leave her apartment and goes in to rescue her best friend, Haley. So she is also motivated. Even though she made some mistakes, she seems to be willing to rectify them. You know, instead of running away, she's going to take that challenge head on and try to save her friends. So they both have gumption. I agree. I don't know if Gemma would break her own nose. I think you're right. Yeah, I feel like if this is who would win in a fight... But then again, Gemma, I mean, she was able to summon a demon with her lies. Is that a superpower? Is she allowed to summon a demon to help her? I guess she never summoned a demon to help her. So she can't all of a sudden summon a demon to help her in a fight. That is a good point, though, because Lola is like the prey. She just gets preyed upon in her cam rooms and gets her identity stolen, where Gemma seems to have a little bit more command, but she doesn't have control of that command. So, yeah. yeah, I don't think she would be able to do that unless she was in a seance. However, Lola was doing all of these things outside of a seance and she was, you know, exercising her own autonomy to make things happen, even though she was being victimized. And then she does reinvent herself, too. So she does come out triumphant. And I don't think Gemma lives either. You know what? You're right. I think it's Lola. It's I Lola think it's Lola. Me. It's Lola. Wow. All right. Here we go. Let's fucking go. <laughs> Are we going to keep with this bracket or move on to the next bracket and cycle through? Let's go through all the initial brackets and then come back to the matchups. So our next division is the babysitter division. (laughs) Elise, what's our first matchup here? Our first matchup in the babysitter division is Ashley from Better Watch Out, whom, by the way, her actress is going to be in the new Elvis biopic. What's her name? Sophia Dion? I'm just laughing at the (laughs) biopic. Is biopic? It biopic? <laughs> Damn. If it's a bio- bi- biopic, it makes it sound like she has a disease. She has a disease and she's in a movie about it? <laughs> no. Um, look, look, let me do a poll on Instagram. Do you say biopic or biopic? This is just like spelunking versus spelunking. You guys, look, if you're talking about going in caves and exploring them, it's pronounced spelunk, not spelunk. And this is something that Shay taught me when we were like 18. So thank you, Shay. <laughs> Also, that pterodactyl has a P in front of it. Okay, that's a little bit embarrassing that I didn't know that. When are you writing about a pterodactyl ever? Look, that is true. I don't remember learning about dinosaurs past the first grade. Well, it's because I told you a joke and you didn't get it. Like, that's what it was. I was like, why can't you hear a pterodactyl go to the bathroom? And you're like, why? I'm like, because the P is silent. You're like, I don't fucking get it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I don't get a lot of things, but... This matchup is something that I do get, and I think I know how this is going to go, but I don't want to be biased. So Ashley from Better Watch Out and Molly from Idle Hands, who isn't actually a babysitter, but is definitely does babysit. Like you can just tell, like, even though that's not in her like immediate diegesis, like it's in her diegesis. She definitely is a babysitter. Yes, I did have to do some squeezing in to get 32 names on the bracket. And I did have to make some broad generalizations to fill out all of our divisions. So Molly is not a babysitter, but tonight she's a babysitter. Okay. So Ashley from Better Watch Out, I revisited this movie 
for this study session for March Madness. And Ashley is definitely still to this day, one of my favorite final girls. She does not take any shit and she's very smart and resourceful. Even though she's dealing with a 13-year-old as the primary villain throughout the movie, he does not by any means take it easy on her for his age. He presents her with a lot of challenges. The whole time watching her, I'm very much on her side and I am never frustrated with her. She's always on point. Molly, on the other hand, Molly is our girl from Idle Hands. We talk about Idle Hands in our first times episode, so way back. And Molly, I remember very much as somebody who always does what I do not want her to do, despite her beauty and you know her popularity. And she's great. And we love her. Jessica Alba plays her. But for me, the winner here is very clear. But what do you think? <laughs> no, Molly is a sacrificial lamb in this, honestly, because, because you're right. Although Ashley is going up against a 13-year-old, it's a 13-year-old who almost murders her. Like, he is a sick little fuck, and she is resourceful. She saves her own life by putting duct tape into a stab wound in her neck. Like, she watches her boyfriend get killed in front of her. R.I.P. Ricky. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to say, blowing I- kisses. I'm blowing kisses. <laughs> but yeah, Ricky, your most heartfelt death, and Ashley, your favorite final girl. Your favorite movie we've covered. I don't know. I'm not speaking for one of them. Like, it's one of them. It's one of them. And it was also very scary. It really is the tops. And I remember that being a part of our conversation too. Like, what would this movie have been if it wasn't oriented in Christmas time? Would it have done better without that, I guess, category attached to it? But it has to be Ashley. It's Ashley. Rip, Molly. You know, she looks good doing whatever she's doing. So I think she'll be okay. She has Devin Sawa at the end of the day. So I think she has a good time. Yeah. And that cute little like pajama set from the 90s. Like she's great. This one's a fun one. This is a fun one. So we have uh, our girl, Laurie Strode from Halloween and Jill (laughs) from When a Stranger Calls. (laughs) I think they're both equally useless. Well, the thing is, Laurie Strode has the whole Halloween franchise behind her, Mm -hmm. where even in the first movie, even though she forgets the rules that we learn later in Scream, you have to shoot the killer in the head to kill them or never walk away from the weapon. Don't keep dropping it on the floor. Keep yourself armed for the love of God. In the first movie, if we're just looking at that, she doesn't do a great job. But she has a love of kids and she keeps the kids protected, much like Jill does in When a Stranger Calls. So I don't know. I mean, just looking at the movie, it's hard to see a difference. But knowing the progression that Laurie Strode goes through, we know that. I mean, she really does become a badass. That's what's hard is you're placing a one-off character against a legacy character, which, of course, Laurie Strode wins if you're doing that. But you're trying to keep it to the isolating of like that first movie. They're very similar, you know? They both get the kids out, just like you said, and they both land some blows on their opponent. Jill stabs the guy through the hand with a fire poker, and Lori, you know, gets out of the closet and is able to stab at him somehow. I I forget exactly how that sequence goes, but here's my thing. I think I'm going to get a lot of shit for almost advocating for Jill here. Oh my God, this is amazing. But Dr. Loomis comes into the house and shoots Michael off the balcony. Mm. Jill makes it to the door by herself. It's a really good point. 
She also has a variety of weapons then going off of your train of thought. Laurie has that knife she can't hold on to. And Jill, she thinks quick with that tequila and the fireplace and the fire poker. Yeah. And even like the security system, like she's not making stupid decisions. She's arming it all of the time and she's making phone calls. She's calling for help the entire time. Like she knows the situation that she's in. She goes under the bridge as a hiding space. She puts the sprinklers on the windows to like obscure view where I feel like the only thing Lori really does is run away. Right. But think about it too. It's the seventies. You know, you don't, I guess you could have like a, like an indoor atrium and a rich house in the seventies, but she isn't in like a super wealthy house. She's just babysitting in the suburbs. She doesn't have these options available to her. True, but, true. But you are right in that we don't see her take advantage of what is around her. We do get to see Jill observe her surroundings and use those observations later. And I don't think we really get to see Laurie do that. I don't know. Oh my God. I don't know. See, like, I don't want to, I don't want Jill to win here, but <laughs> I don't want Jill to win. But at the same time, when you're putting it like kind of beat by beat, Even with like the Bobby situation with Jill, like she's like, fuck you, fuck him, fuck this, like all that kind of stuff. Whereas Lori, I forget what her deal is with boys. Not to say that this should like factor in, but you know what I mean? Like who's more assertive between the two? See, the thing about Lori is she was characterized in the 70s where I think this idea of like virginity had much more of a hold on women. Not to say that it still doesn't, but Lori was so virginal, almost like cringeworthy virginal, like doesn't know how to talk to boys, doesn't understand her friends who are interested in boys and drinking. Whereas Jill, even though she's kind of cringeworthy (laughs) in some ways, is at least a little bit more outspoken about what she wants, what she deserves. She just seems a little bit more in tune to that part of herself. I wonder if that. I don't know, clarity or confidence in herself is what helps her end up getting out of the house, right? Not to say that being sexually aware means that you're any more likely to beat a villain. I I mean, that's a stretch, but symbolically, I don't know. Like Laurie Strode, because of this stereotypical virginal role she takes on, also takes on this very much damsel in distress. Like you said, Loomis has to come in and save her. Jill doesn't have that. Even though she's, she's a mess in her own way, she is the one that has to figure it out. And there is no Loomis. Exactly. Because it's not even Lori had the ability to call 911. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Jill could have not called 911 and she would be dead. So are we really giving this to Jill? I think I, we might be giving this to Jill. If we're just looking at the first movie... We're giving it to Jill. We're giving it to Jill. Wow. An upset. An upset. (laughs) upset. Our first upset. Oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) Damn, y'all. Wow, so that leaves us next game. We're going to see Ashley against Jill. Yeah, we'll circle back to that. Where there's a babysitter, there's a mom. (laughs) We have a mom division. Our first matchup in the mom division is Diane from one of my personal favorites, Poltergeist, and Claire from our Irish eco-horror folklore episode, The Hallow. This one is interesting, especially because I still have never seen Poltergeist, but I know it is one that we covered also in our first times episode. 
And I remember Diane, despite never seeing her, but hearing about her. And she does a lot of really cool, badass things. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So for a quick reminder, Diane's daughter, Carol Ann, goes missing in the TV because there is a poltergeist in the house they just moved into. So Carol Ann is kind of stuck between dimensions. And by the end of the movie, Diane has been assaulted by multiple ghosts, but she ends up going through a portal into another dimension and pulling her daughter out and getting her family away from the haunted house in time for all of them to survive. So not only does she save herself, not only does she survive for herself, but she makes sure everybody in her family leaves physically unscathed. She is our multidimensional mommy. Multidimensional mommy. Yes. We love Diane. Give us a little bit of a reminder of what Claire does in The Hallow. Okay, so Claire in The Hallow, and if you've listened to this episode, you might remember, she's a little bit disappointing. And part of that is because she's not as much of a focus as the father character is, but also she doesn't really do much. She doesn't really call the shots like we see some moms do in the horror movies that we watch. And she, at the end, almost isn't able to tell her baby apart from the changeling baby. But she does ultimately do that. Do you remember any particular weapons that she uses? She does a lot of running. Yeah, she's a cardio mommy. (laughs) She's on the Peloton, y'all. She would be a Peloton mom. The thing that I remember most about her is the fact that the dad was taking their kid on nature walks while she was taking like irons off of their windows. Oh, yeah. And that she was like really industrial in that way. And then she ends up fending the father off at some point because he starts transforming and she Mm -hmm. ends up stabbing him in the shoulder with a piece of iron. So it slows him down so that he doesn't kill their baby. Or what she thinks is her baby. So she does a decent enough job keeping her baby slash the changeling alive. And she also had the mommy instincts where she didn't want to lock the baby in the cupboard because she was worried about things going through the walls. But the dad was able to convince her of the other way. You know what I mean? I think she was too subservient. And that was her ultimate downfall. I can't help but wonder, because of what you said, how Claire would do on her own, like without that outside influence that we see a couple times, like you said, question her instincts. And you're right, she does have good instincts, but she constantly second guesses herself. It's hard to say how she would do in a fight because we don't really get to see her thinking on her own, aside from the times that she's running or separate from her husband. And in those situations, she's like in the middle of a field. She doesn't really have a lot at her disposal. And we don't see her in those situations very often, except when she does ultimately choose the right baby. Yeah. But even then, like I'm thinking about Diane and her discourse with her husband in Poltergeist, where the husband wanted to go into the portal to save Carol Ann. And she's like, no. You need to stay here and hold the rope. I'm going to get my baby. So you could tell that she has a lot more resolve, a lot more like bravery. Whereas I feel as though if Claire's husband was like, I'm going to go get the baby, she'd be like, okay, you know what I mean? So I think for that reason, Diane has to take this one for me. I think so too. She has a lot more experience getting her baby back. (laughs) The next matchup in the mom division, we have. Judy Hicks from Scream 2022 versus Kate from Orphan. Okay, this is really hard. I think so. I think this one's tough. 
Judy Hicks is somebody we just talked about in our Scream episode where Shay and I saw Scream in theaters and then talked about it. She makes it through the fourth Scream movie, and that's impressive because she is a character that's introduced in the fourth movie and makes it to the fifth, which doesn't often happen for characters who aren't our original few, right? Like our Sydneys, our Gales, our Deweys. But Kate from The Orphan also deals with a lot of shit. So whereas Judy Hicks eventually gets to be sheriff of the town and she's very well respected and she makes great lemon bars, Kate also deals with accidentally adopting a woman who looks to be a child and has a serial killer record for trying to get with her adopted daddies and then killing the rest of the family. And Kate has really good instincts about that. She, despite how it might look, is pretty determined to bring little Esther to justice. And even though she doesn't get to do it in time to save her husband, she does end up saving her kids, which is good. And Judy Hicks, despite her best efforts, does seem to get a little bit caught up in the drama and makes a couple of rash decisions, which do end up getting her killed. But when you're dealing with a killer like Ghostface, that's the thing. Like Esther, you could argue is so predictable. Ghostface, definitely a little bit more difficult to pin down. I remember making this argument during our discussion of Orphan. No one can take down this 80-pound menace. Whereas Judy Hicks has a whole ass man that she's trying to take down. And yes, she does get distracted because she thinks her son is being killed. So she doesn't check her corners. She runs up on her house a little too quick and she ends up getting stabbed in broad daylight. And it's mortifying and it's really sad. And her son does end up dying. But I would say almost to a fault, ever since her experience in the fourth one, she has armed her family to be ready for a moment like this, right? Like Wes is carrying around a taser and pepper spray to go on a jog in broad daylight. She is double locking the doors just to go out and get sushi. So part of me thinks that is in her character to not ignore some of the signs that Kate may have ignored earlier in the movie. She's investigative. She would be really on top of everything. She would be able to predict and see things like she's a police officer where Kate has these character flaws that makes her an unreliable narrator, right? We see her struggling with alcoholism after the loss of their third biological child and then slipping up with this alcoholism halfway through the movie when Esther starts stressing her out. So we get to see that Kate takes a very frantic approach to things where Judy Hicks takes a very calculated approach to things. In the end, Kate does survive and Judy doesn't. But Again, their adversaries are very different. Like if Ghostface was the one on the ice, would a kick to the face kill Ghostface in the way that it would kill somebody with the stature of Esther? I don't know. I guess if we're looking at them head to head, we don't see Kate fight with anybody except Esther. So you're right. Whereas Judy Hicks, she has experience with a gun. I don't think we ever see Kate use a gun. You know who we do see with a gun? I'm so sorry. You know who we do see with a gun? Fucking Max. Max has the gun. Maxie in Orphan. She shoots the ice, which makes the whole form. Maxie's right. the one with the gun. She's like six. All right. That's I'm it. Sorry. The winner is Judy Hicks. The winner is Judy Hicks. <laughs> That's all I needed. I needed Judy to make it to the next Judy, Judy, I think, would serve Kate up pretty well. Not to say that Kate wouldn't put up a fight if she had to. That's but- the thing. Kate will drive a car through her house. If it's Kate in a car against (laughs) Judy, like that's different. But if we're just looking like body to body, Kate's nothing without her car. (laughs) 
Judy is serving her up. Judy is our winner. Okay. All right. Winners of the month. Diane v. Judy. Diane v. Judy. Diane v. Judy. So moving on to cult girls, we have Susie, our ballerina from Suspiria, and Danny from Midsummer. I feel strongly about who's winning this one. I also feel strongly about this. For those of you who don't remember, Susie goes to a dance school and then discovers that it's run by a coven of witches. And Danny goes on a trip with her boyfriend and then joins the cult that he's studying. (laughs) And ends up sentencing him to death as the flower queen, the May queen, not the Mayflower. Yes, not the Mayflower, the Maypole, the May queen. (laughs) Yes. So what do you think? Talk to me. This is another Haley versus Blair thing for me where Susie seems very reactive. And Danny seems very proactive. You can argue that Danny's traumatized. And I would argue that she stays traumatized throughout the the entirety of the movie. But I think it depends on your reading of Midsummer, right? Because you could argue that Susie doesn't join the coven. She leaves. She survives. She burns the place to the ground. Whereas Danny joins the cult. So you could also think like who's of more sound mind, who's of more solid mind, but I see Danny taking more actionable steps for whatever vengeance looks like for her and meeting her needs, whatever they are. Does she join a cult? Yes, she does. But does she choose the option that gives her more happiness, love, fulfillment that she is not getting from Christian or his friends? Yes. Is it a short-term gain? Probably, but I think she's more proactive and Susie's more reactive. I don't know. What do you think? So since we're looking at this in like a fight situation, the thing about Susie is that she gets a lot of assistance from other people, particularly her good friend who does end up dying. And her good friend is the one that tips her off as to what's going on and gives her enough information to go off of and then seek answers. So without that help and assistance, I don't know if Susie would have really figured out that something was whack enough to go explore it. However, Danny, she's operating very independently, partially because of the trauma that she's experiencing, partially because of the rifts that exists between her and her boyfriend and his occupation with other things. And as somebody operating independently, I definitely think we see Danny being more comfortable with that. I think Danny wins. Okay. Yeah. Danny. Susie would just be like, ah. <laughs> She'd fall into that room of mousetraps or wherever the fuck it is in Suspiria where she like plunges right. into that like room of syringes. Danny takes the cake. Okay. So our next matchup is Riley from Black Christmas 2020, 2019. I forget. And Grace from Ready or Not. Can you remind me who Riley is? So Riley, (laughs) which might give you an indication of who we think is going to win this matchup. Riley is a sorority sister in the Black Christmas remake. She is an orphan, even though we don't find out why, nor is it important to the story. And she is a survivor of sexual assault from a fraternity member who fucked up her undergrad. But by the end, she performs a musical number with her sisters and kind of gains a little bit of vengeance. But then it turns out that the fraternity that her rapist is a part of is a cult that is going after women who step out of line, quote unquote. So she must lead the crusade in saving herself and her fellow sorority sisters from this very hella misogynistic fraternity cult situation. So she is not in a cult, but she is dealing with a cult. 
Okay. I do remember her. I can picture her face. And she does do a couple of impressive things. She's like super suspicious of everybody, but she's also like sticking it to the man in terms of Mm -hmm. like feminism and all that kind of stuff. She's supportive of her friends. She's highly investigative. Like she's, you know, going, knocking on doors, asking questions, all that kind of thing. She's very wary of newcomers, even that boy that has a crush on her that I really remember liking a lot. Yes, you loved him. Yes, I did love him. I forget his name, but I, I did adore him. But Where she loses points for me is the ending sequence, right? When the fraternity has her and her rapist is going to either sacrifice her or assault her in some way, it is not until the gang of sorority sisters busts the door open and it is then she finds that will to survive to overcome her abuser, that kind of situation, right? Like, I remember we had mixed feelings about the messaging of this movie and what it was trying to say and all that kind of stuff. I'm not knocking women's solidarity and women showing up for other women. But in terms of her own capabilities, if we look at Grace's pedigree, Grace is up there with Ashley for me. I don't know. I am with you. Grace is one of the most iconic final girls we've seen. And kind of a continuation off of the last matchup we had with Susie and Danny. Riley, she is like a final girl extrovert. She gets power from the people around her. And if we're looking at this as an individual fight, Grace knows what to do when shit needs to be done. And Grace is in a movie where she's 10v1 the entire fucking time. Yes. (laughs) Yes. She will take rifles off of walls. She will hide in dumbwaiters. She will hide in secret passages in the floor and take a nail through the hand and squeeze her way through fence bars. Like she will do what it takes. Yeah. She'll kick people in the back of the head while they're driving. She'll throw boiling water on people. She'll kill her mother-in-law. She doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't give a fuck. She's just going to survive the night. Yeah, and she's resourceful. I'm also just very partial to Samara Weaving because I think she's she plays <laughs> just such good horror people in every movie that she's in. I fucking adore her. I don't think Riley could survive by herself and Grace no. survives off surviving by herself. So Grace takes it. No problem. Yeah, Grace is the one. Wow. On to the next side. Wow, holy fuck. Okay, I'm very excited. <laughs> so the next division we have is out of this world girls. These are people dealing with supernatural or otherwise otherworldly beings. Our first matchup is Kirsty from Hellraiser versus Addie from Us. Yeah, this one's easy as fuck. You think so? <laughs> Kirsty from Hellraiser? I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm impartial to Kirsty and very, very partial to Addie, which that gives away how I'm feeling. First of all, Kirsty is queen of jumping to conclusions. She rushes into situations. Although she has a dynamic arc, which we get to see when her boyfriend or whatever tries to take control of the situation and she like swats him away and is like, basically, fuck off. I know what I'm doing, which I love. My favorite moment I get to see from her. Addie, we realize by the end of Us, has really been in the know and in control the whole time. Like Addie didn't just get presented with a situation that she had to deal with once. Addie's whole life has been a situation that she's had to adjust to on a day-by-day basis. And she also straddles that line between hero and villain, which I am a sucker for because of the way Us ends and the information we learn. We see her use weapons. We see her use her smarts. I just think that it has to be Addie. 
Yeah, I was partial to Kirsty because of the strategy that she employs where the Cenobites were going to kill her in the hospital room. But she's like, no, I can take you to Frank. I can take you to my uncle. And then she's the one who figures out the puzzle box, right? Like, why couldn't Frank figure out the puzzle box? I mean, he's the one who got sucked into it, but she's using it to trap Pinhead and Deep Throat and all of those people, right? She moves out of the way so that Julia gets killed instead of her. So like, to me, because she is keeper of the box, granted the box ends up getting stolen by the end of the movie and that kind of takes away her power. That was my defense for Kiersey is she does seem to be a little reactionary, but you could see somebody like Claire from the Hallow folding under Uncle Frank, but she's like, fuck you, you fucking perv. I'm going to put away and send you to fucking hell. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? You're right. She ends up being more, I think in the shadow of her stepmother too, she's so different. But you're right. She does end up proving herself as somebody who's very resourceful. I feel like our like main <laughs> trait tonight has been resourceful. We fucking love being resourceful. Remember in the fifth grade when you always had conversations about characteristics and we learned what resourceful meant? I'm feeling really in tune with my fifth grade self right now because all I can talk about is being resourceful. <laughs> Viscerally, the only thing I can remember from fifth grade is that in a reading circle, I was the only one that knew that you pronounced orders like orders and not horse divorce. And I felt really superior and I wrote that high for like a year. Like, that's the only thing I remember about my fifth grade experience. (laughs) I am really glad that it was a positive experience. Might have been the only one I had, but alas. (laughs) But here's the thing with Addie. She organized all of the tethers she was the one that was like y'all we need some formation we need some matching red track suits we need some shears and we're gonna get to fucking business right now hold on a second are we talking about addy as we know her or real addy you're right who is red and who is addy to me, Addie's the girl in the beginning who ends yeah. up underground, but then she organizes all of the tethers and fucks shit up. I've been looking at Addie as we know her. Like in my head, Interesting. When, we red, okay. when we talk about Red, Red is going to be the one to reckon with because of her organizational skills. Right. I don't know. Addie's the OG. Like that is Addie, but Red is also Addie. But I guess you could also argue they're both Addie. They both have to be Addie. I don't know. If we're looking at Addie as we know her... I still think that she wins. Addie wins. Okay. (laughs) Addie slash Red wins. However, when we look at Red as a villain, which also, I think the direction that TV and movie entertainment has been moving in for a very long time is blurring the line between good and evil, hero and villain, finer girl and villain. So I think Addie and Red is a really good example because if we're looking at this from a stereotypical movie trope standpoint, Addie is the woman we're introduced to first. She's our final girl. Red is the villain. However, when you watch the movie, you realize that there, you know, there's so much going on there that there isn't that clear line between good versus evil. And those perspectives can be flipped, right? You're kind of left wondering who is the hero, who is the villain. It doesn't really exist. This is social commentary. (laughs) So I wonder if as horror goes on and on and on, if that line is also going to continue to blur and we're going to see less and less of like the Laurie Strode, Michael Myers dynamic, which is very, very clear cut and more of these difficult, complicated characterizations that leave us with more questions than answers. I hope it means that we can still do brackets every March. 
can't have yeah. these gray areas. Come on. We need some good guys and bad guys, but no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Our next matchup in the out of this world girls is Stokely from the faculty and Angie from await further instructions. This one's tricky. And I almost have to like justify putting Stokely here because it's very obvious that the titular character in the faculty is obviously Elijah Wood. So there really isn't like a final girl, but Stokely lasts the longest out of all of the OG gal characters that aren't antagonists. Stokely lasts the longest without being turned into a space slug zombie. So that's why I chose her. But she just gets turned into a lavender set wearing high school kid by the end of the movie instead of her goth nonconformist original characterization we see. Whereas Angie, who is the girlfriend of our main character in Await Further Instructions, who goes to meet his very racist family for a awkward holiday celebration and then gets trapped in by these wire aliens and the government maybe telling them what to do. She allows herself to get locked in a bedroom with dead gramps for half the movie. The thing is, though, with her, I don't know what the fuck else she would have done. Like she was in a very tough situation and she tried a lot of different ways to continue communicating with her boyfriend on the other side of the door and keep trying to push for what she thought was right, what they should do about this technical entity that had locked them into their homes. And eventually, you know, we know that she was unsuccessful. This is another movie where, spoiler, everyone fucking dies except the baby that our main guy's sister was pregnant with. But she's really smart and she tries a lot of fucking things. Like she does not go down without a fight, which is really admirable. Yeah, I would say that Sokli's probably in the submissive position for most of the faculty. She even sways when Stan has a crush on her and almost lets him in the door after he's gotten slugged. And she really does lose herself that last 10 minutes of the movie. We had a discussion about what we thought that meant at the end of the faculty, whether it was her conforming or whether it was her feeling more comfortable, whatever it was. But, you know, Angie, she's a doctoral student. She is unwavering in her defense of her race, her morals, her identity, the truth. I forget Mm -hmm. how ultimately she ends up not surviving. Like, I forget how that happens. But she is a steadfast character up until her end, from what I remember. You're right. Angie is a doctoral student, so she is older than Stokely, at least by, I don't know, maybe even up to 10 years. So if we were to see them in a fight, even though Stokely has this very like intense appearance in the beginning, like she could beat the shit out of you. Angie might be the one that could actually win. She's much more intuitive and resourceful. But I cannot but wonder if Stokely and Angie were the same age, how they would fare in a fight. Because if Stokely was older, got out of high school, maybe had some find herself experiences, how she would end up fighting against somebody like Angie. But I think for as it is, Angie is the one that has to win. I agree with you. Angie wins. On to the next division. We have our slasher girl division. Our first matchup is Sam from Scream 2022 and Dana from Cabin in the Woods. Oh my God. (laughs) I have who I think should win, but I want to hear what you think. 
This is really hard. They've been getting progressively harder, y'all. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been warming up and now I think we are in the heat of the match. Okay. We're in the heat of it. So Sam from Scream is obviously a great final girl. The daughter of a serial killer. Daughter of a serial killer. And at the end of that movie, we see her take to killing very well. She will do what it takes when shit needs to get done. Dana and Cabin in the Woods. She has good instincts. Is she the one that says don't sing the song? Or is she the one that says the prayer? She's the one who reads the Latin. Okay. Oh, this is very obvious then to me. Okay, we'll see because... Okay, so Dana does a little oopsie and unleashes some zombie farmers from the 20s, some incestuous zombie farmers from the 20s as her demon of choice in Cabin in the Woods, which isn't really her choice. It's just what she found interesting and read from it. Like if, wait, hold on a fucking second. If we were in our own Cabin in the Woods, what would be the fucking demon that you unleashed? Because I bet you any money I would pick up like some kind of artifact about like Puritans and I would be haunted by some like Puritan (laughs) fucking zombies. That doesn't really say anything except what she's interested in. Like, she just thought that this was an interesting thing to pick up, this diary. You're right. I'm I'm trying to think, like, because there's so many Easter eggs in that movie, I would need to, like, literally watch that scene and see, like, what my hands would reach for. Because I know that there's, like, five (laughs) fake-outs where it's, like, somebody almost, like, blows a conch for the mermaid, right? And someone almost puts an amulet on where it's going to be some, like, witch woman. Here's my defense of Dana in this situation. Okay. They're being drugged. Oh, you're so fucking right. They're being compelled. They are being pumped with drugs that only Marty is immune to because he's stoned, right? So like under normal circumstances, would she have done that? I mean, it's hard because you can't really judge that, but they're being drugged. Even right before she reads the Latin, she's getting these whispers in her ears where it's like, read it. You know what I mean? You're right. I totally forgot about that part. And that definitely changes it. Whereas, you know, Sam has to take these antipsychotics to get her dad to go away, to get Billy Loomis to go away. And presuming that she wasn't in the situation that she was in with her sister, if she had continued to take the antipsychotics, she would not have seen Billy Loomis in the corner of the room to see where the knife was to be able to kill Ricky. Maybe Ricky Richie. I don't know. I'm thinking I'm still thinking a better watch. Ricky. No, Richie. Richie, Richie, Richie. So there's that. Where they're both kind of have a haze on them in some degree, whether it be through antipsychotics or whether it be through being compelled. Here's my argument for Dana. Okay. Sigourney fucking Weaver is my argument. Because it's Sigourney fucking Weaver, right? The (laughs) ending, her and Marty are willing to let the world fucking die. They will let the world die. Where Sam... I feel like it's useless for half of the movie in Scream. I don't like that's the thing. She was my least favorite final girl of all of the Scream final girls. And that's not to say Mm -hmm. she doesn't have potential, but just in terms of her entire personality is that she's the daughter of a serial killer. Whereas Dana, she is almost about to be manipulated to give the world up to let herself die. And she's like, no, fuck you. And she lets the world die because she's like, I'm not fucking dying. She doesn't give in to that like victim complex type of situation. And you had every single horror movie nemesis in the building and she made it to the safe place damn good point can't argue with that sam can't realize that her boyfriend's a psychopath Mm. whereas dana has to navigate so much other weird shit to me that's where i thought dana was easy win here because it's like she just has to deal with so much more I also see the point where she is the one that brings upon that thing but if it wasn't her it was going to be someone else because of all of the like drugs I can't help but wonder if Sam in future movies is going to kind of prove herself more 
like a Laurie Strode situation. Like if we're taking it at the first movie we see her in, she's young, wasn't really fully aware of what was going on. Now that she is aware of what's going on and has this experience, how will that impact her character development? But as far as runtime of the movie, who do we see develop and take on the most? You're right. I mean, it's Dana. That's the thing. If you were pitting me up against Sam's little sister, she's Mm. a fucking resilient bitch. (laughs) She's gotten attacked thrice. Thrice. (laughs) She's lost a shit ton of blood and that girl's still going. If it was against her, I'm like, nah, she's resilient. But I got Dana on this one. All right. I'll take it. I concede. I concede. Excellent. I love this. Next matchup in the Slasher Girl division, we have another champion of Scream, Sydney Prescott from Scream. Against Alice from Friday the 13th. This is a sacrificial Look. lamb situation for me. Alice. <laughs> <laughs> Alice Look, sucks. There's so much about her that is Laurie Strode. I feel like she doesn't even get to really have her own identity because of the movie's predecessor that it is admittedly, right, trying to take parts of and integrate. Whereas Sydney fucking Prescott has seen it all, done it all. And the thing I love about Sydney the most is how well she manages her trauma. You know that woman goes to therapy and you know she practices self-care like does, you know, a little face mask every once in a while to make herself feel good. <laughs> and you, and she, you know that she has been not only physically to the worst places, but mentally to the worst fucking places. And every time you see her, she gets stronger and stronger. She is a mental health icon. And because we are judging by the movie that we see her in, this is the fifth movie. So we do have the legacy of Sydney Prescott up until this point. If she was in a fight with Alice, she'd fucking win in a heartbeat. Even if we were just looking at first Sydney Prescott, even if it was just little baby high school Sydney Prescott, it would still be her because she immediately takes on the role of getting done what needs to get done. The only way I would concede is that Alice beheads a bitch. That's it. Because you can say that she's better than Laurie Strode in that degree because she beheads Pamela Voorhees. But... I mean, I think Sydney Prescott with her double tap-ness and her smarts, she's just not going to lose. So Sydney, congratulations, you win. Sydney, she's going to be around for a while. I mean, this is just, she's going to be around. On to the next division. This is our which bitch division. And first up, we have Ivy from The Village from our Puritan Ladies episode and Heather from The Blair Witch Project. Such different skill sets. Very different skill sets. I just revisited Blair Witch Project. Okay. And my consensus was that I fucking hated Heather (laughs) the entire time. You were defending Heather. I couldn't stand Heather the entire time because (laughs) she was more worried about shoving a camera on people's faces than she was surviving or thriving, where I believe Ivy is the definition of surviving and thriving because Mm. she lost her sight. Her soon-to-be betrothed ends up getting stabbed by a jealous man, and she goes blindly through the wood, accidentally kills that man, recovers penicillin from a modern man, and then makes her way back. If these two were to face off, I see Heather as being a little bit more erratic, a little bit more rash, 
Despite, of course, us knowing she is very intelligent as a film student and has a very strong artistic drive, I think Ivy would be much more intelligent and I think she would be triumphant. I mean, she almost has a way of moving through her life where she has this like spiritual drive, like things just seem to break her way. And when you have that kind of pull or connection with the universe around you, which is completely opposite from Heather, is lost in the woods, cannot catch a break, has to carry around this heavy camera everywhere. It's hard to argue that Heather could come out triumphant in a fight. Ivy can make her way through woods blind and Heather can't find her way out with a map. (laughs) That's it. That's all we need to know. Put these bitches in a corn maze. That's the fight I want to see them in. I want to see them in that fight. Because that would be really excellent. That's it. Ivy can make it through the fucking woods blind. (laughs) And Heather can't find her way out with a map. Excellent. That's it. That's it. it. Ivy wins. The next matchup in the witch bitch division is Thomason from the Bevitch, the witch versus Abigail Williams from the Crucible. (laughs) I don't even know. I knew this matchup was coming and I don't know what to do. I don't remember anything about Abigail Williams. So you'll need to tell a little bit about like her resourcefulness versus Thomason. Cause I'm familiar with Thomason, but like Abigail Williams, like, I don't know what she brings to the table. Really. This is the thing about Abigail Williams. If we're looking at the portrayal of Abigail Williams in the crucible, she's a 17 year old young woman. And she essentially grabs a culture by the balls and exploits their own hypocrisies for her power gain. And I mean, as far as intellect goes, that is something. Now, when that power starts to recede and the court starts to lose power, or I guess influence in the eyes of the people, Abigail Williams is pretty much useless. She does have to flee. So she only gets her power by exploiting her culture and the puritanical principles to which her town lives. But when that's taken away, she can't stand. She's almost a little bit like a parasite. Like she needs that structure to live within and operate within. And without it, she loses what she has worked for. So I guess it really comes down to how we perceive the ending of The Witch. Because you could see that Thomason has done the ultimate rebellion against her faith by joining Black Philip and the devil. Or... You could see that someone has been so broken down from their morals that they joined Black Philip and the Devil. It depends on your reading of the witch. So if you compare either one of those to Abigail Williams's fleeing of the situation, her escaping the system that was her downfall in a way, she was able to get away. Whereas was Thomason liberated or was Thomason entrapped? Here's the thing about Thomason, and I I really love Thomason. She doesn't really do anything. The thing that saves her is being old enough to have her period, therefore Mm. being old enough to be corrupted by the devil. Like if she had an older sister, if she was a couple years younger, she'd be fucking toast. She does kill her mom. She does kill her mom, but that's a kill or be killed situation. True. Her mom was going to kill her. Like in that sense, it's self-defense. The thing with Abigail too, which I love, a lot of her motivation comes from sexual awakening. She has an affair with John Proctor, which clues her into, hey, what the fuck? This puritanical culture I lives in makes me feel like I have to feel like shit for experiencing these wonderful emotions and sensations. 
there's no way this is true. So I feel like Abigail takes in what's around her and uses it to her advantage. Whereas Thomason doesn't do that until the very end. We can give it to Abigail. I think we should give it to Abigail. And again, that's another thing. Age. Abigail is 17. Thomason, she's probably closer to 15. And when you're young like that, two years makes a big difference. And I wonder, you know, what would it be like if they were equally matched in age? Would Thomason have more experiences that maybe would have felt more empowering to her? I don't know. We're on to our last new division before we start going through the repeats. The last is our angsty teen division. And our first matchup is Bridget from Ginger Snaps versus Jay from It Follows. This has to be one of the toughest ones. This is really hard to me. I think I have a favorite, but it's only, I don't know, actually, I don't know. It's hard because they're both resourceful, but I also feel like they both really rely on their circle. You have Bridget. Her sister, Ginger, turns into a werewolf. She ends up befriending this drug-dealing botanist who ends (laughs) up coming up with a antidote or a reversal or a slowdown of the lycanthropy situation, which she weaponizes. Where you have Jay, who is being stalked by this sexually transmitted entity of sorts, And she has her sister and this guy friend who wants to fuck her the entire time that are willing to go to the ends of the earth to help her. So I feel like they are both very codependent. They are both very codependent and their success relies on being codependent. And they both have a sense of helplessness that is integral to their character, right? Because Bridget is this little sister where Ginger is always taking the lead. And now Ginger is becoming this sexually awakened boy, crazy dude. And Bridget's not there. And she doesn't know exactly like what to do with her identity without her sister. But then you also have Jay who was sexually assaulted and is reeling from that trauma. And is just kind of reaching for anybody who will help her. So who would win in a fight? I don't know. That's really tough. I don't know. Do you have like a gut instinct here? I think Bridget's more capable than Jay is. And the only reason I say that is because she is willing to do what it takes to help her sister. You know, I feel as though she is only using Mr. Botanist Boy for her sister's purpose. Whereas Jay is clinging on to her friends like they're life rafts. Whereas you see at the end of the movie, Bridget lets herself become a lycanthrope. She bonds that blood with her and her sister where she's like, we are in this together. I love you. We're getting through this. You could say that's a flaw that she makes, but Jay just seems like a perennial, I very cautiously say victim just due to the circumstances of this movie, but you don't see her taking a lot of actionable steps with her situation. Also, the fucking pool scheme is what I like shat on maybe the most on this podcast, even if it wasn't Jay's idea. Uh Uh-huh. It's just a lot. And especially like I'm being a little tainted because there are sequels to Ginger Snaps where Bridget is a lot more actionable. So I'm having that like taint my perception. But even in the movie, again, you see her do what the fuck it takes. She eats her boyfriend's blood with her sister to try to help her. I think it's Bridget. I agree. Yeah. Again, another thing is if we were to see a showdown with a posse in the back who would come out triumphant, Jay, I think would stand more of a chance. And does it make sense that she needs her posse to help her get through? Yes, because of the nature of the movie and the trauma that she experienced. But if we're doing a one-on-one fight, I agree. I think Bridget is a great winner. 
Bridget also knows how to kill a bitch because of all of that like death photography they do in the beginning. <laughs> True. <laughs> They've hit a dead body. Like they do everything in that. Like she's yeah. a little more hands-on and capable. So then that brings us to Needy from Jennifer's Body versus Dawn from Teeth. Oh, this pulls on my heartstrings a little bit. I know. We know how you feel about Jennifer's body. Yeah, I do. I do. Like, that's the thing. Needy is codependent in a similar way. Whereas Dawn has a very defined arc where she starts out as this abstinence person. And then she is assaulted by Toby Cobb and then assaulted by a gynecologist. And then her stepbrother, like all of these things. And she ends up being able to like weaponize her difference in a way where she is able to really break from her old identity and form a new one. But you also see Needy doing that, right? Where Needy was super codependent in the beginning. She goes through a traumatic experience, very similar to how Dawn does. Dawn loses her mom. Needy loses her boyfriendship. And then eventually her best friend, Jennifer, and then she fucking goes to juvie, breaks out of juvie, and then kills the band that killed her best friend. The ends of their movies are exactly the same if you think about it, because Needy goes on a killing spree, killing all of Low Shoulder, and Dawn is sitting at that rest stop with that pervy guy and bites his hand off or something. You know what I mean? So it's like they both have very similar, like, super innocent to, like, crazy independent arcs. It's just a matter of, I guess, like, who's is bigger and who's is going to, like, survive in the fight between them. My argument for Needy is that she's part succubus now. True. If Needy and Dawn are in a fight, the only way that Dawn is winning is if Needy tries to fuck Dawn. Yeah. Which, Needy's a little gay, but... Yeah. I don't know. If you're in a fight, like, if the scenario we're looking at is a fight, you're not just going to start, like, fucking someone. So I think because of that, and especially if you know the weapons that your opponent has, if she knows that Dawn has a vagina dentata, a vagina dentata, I was like a toothed vagina. (laughs) If she knows that Dawn has a vagina dentata, thank you. You know, she's not going to fall for that. And I think we see Needy exhibit a lot more creativity in, in the weapons that she uses and how she keeps herself alive. So I just don't think that Dawn is an opponent that would be as much of a threat to her as Dawn is capable of being to other opponents. So yeah, are we saying needy? I say needy. Needy. So we've done the first round of our bracket, but it wouldn't be a true podcast if we didn't make you wait for a part two. Also, we're probably at our usual timestamp now anyway. And you're probably prepped and primed to take a little break ski and come back next week and see what we have to say about our lasting pairs. We can go over them one more time. Yes. Yes. Give us a rapid review. Okay. From the mom division, Diane from Poltergeist and Judy Hicks from Scream will face off. From the cult girls division, Danny from Midsummer and Grace from Ready or Not will face off. From our digital girls division, Blair from Unfriended and Lola from Cam will have a showdown. From the babysitter division, Ashley from Better Watch Out and Jill (laughs) from When a Stranger Calls will fight to the death. Finally, on our last four divisions, four out of this world girls, Addie from Us and Angie from Await Further Instructions. We'll see who is best. From our slasher girl division, Dana from Cabin in the Woods and Sydney from Scream will face off. 
from our witch bitch division. Ivy from the village and Abigail from the crucible will face off. And finally, from our angry teen division, angsty team division, <laughs> angsty teen division. <laughs> Bridget from Ginger Snaps and Needy from Jennifer's Body will have a showdown. And that's who we're left with this week. Yes, we're going to try to get these episodes out rapid fire. So the second half of March Madness, which will reveal the winner of our final girls March Madness bracket will be the next episode you hear. And then after that, we will also have a two-parter for our villains. So March will just be full of competition, but absolutely check out our Instagram for updates and maybe some surprises in participation. Yeah, we want to know what you think. We want to know your thoughts. Who do you think is going to come out triumphant? So keep an eye out for those polls so you can participate. If you haven't already followed us on Instagram at the horrors podcast, definitely do so. So you can actually participate in what we just mentioned. Also feel free to email us with any questions, comments, whatever at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.